Thanks for listening to Covenant Church Podcast. We hope that this message is exactly what you need to hear. Good morning, Covenant Church. How are you today? Doing okay? All right. Well, welcome to Covenant in the room. Welcome to Covenant online throughout the world, wherever you are, and welcome to Covenant of the Future. The people that choose to watch this message later and pray the prayers and sing the songs with us. Don't we welcome them too? You guys welcoming them too? Yeah, we welcome you guys too. It's kind of amazing that God can work this way, that he transcends even time so that people who enter into the prayers of today, tomorrow, are part of this prayer now to God. It's really remarkable. And you know, I think that God has chosen to work in unusual ways that we might call unnatural just to show us how completely natural the miraculous is with him. Uh, I remember uh, a time in my youth that was uh, kind of the last remnants of a church age that predates us all, in which church socials were a big part of church life. And one of the greatest skills you could have as a Christian was being really good at sack races. (laughs) Does anybody remember a time like this? Yeah, it's mostly way in our past now. But there was a time when churches would get together for something they'd call picnics and potlucks after church. And they would do sack races and they'd do three-legged races and they'd like blindfold people and bob for apples and all kinds of weird stuff. And they called it part of their Christian living. And I just think, when I think about that, that that's what I want church life to be. Don't you? Not necessarily the bobbing for apples. But a little bit of fun. A little bit of celebration. I want the church of the future to have some of what the church in the past had, where we play together as well as pray together, where we work together, and where we bring our real needs and concerns together, where we give generously and see ministries multiplied like some of those that we heard about today in the youth ministry and in our urban alliance. Isn't it true that God has always been able to do more with our loaves and our fishes than we could anyways? So why not pray for a church in the future that has those kinds of things and know that some of them are going to be watching this today? In fact, this idea that God can move through space and through time and do the unimaginable is really what our text is about today. We have in front of us the seventh and final sign of John's gospel, the raising of Lazarus which certainly puts God's power to cross dimensions on display, even from death to life. So why don't we read the text this morning from John 11, 38 to 44, but as we read, be aware, just know, that the story about the raising of Lazarus actually is part of a much broader section of Scripture. From the beginning of chapter 11 till somewhere in the middle of 12, around verse 19, this miracle continues to be mentioned as people reflect on its meaning. There's a total of 76 verses that have to do with people working out what does it mean that Jesus raises Lazarus. And I thought 76 was a bit much to read to all of you this morning. So I'm going to read this section. Are you ready for the word of the Lord? John 11:38 to 44. Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor, 
for he's been there four days. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. This is the word of the Lord. Amen? Amen. Praise be to God. Now, I wanted to share two other scriptures with you before I pray and we enter into the sermon because I think they relate so importantly to today's text. The first one comes from John, the same author, in the beginning statement of his gospel. When he wrote about Jesus, that Jesus in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. And here's the part I really wanted you to catch. Through him all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. John says that God was pleased to use Jesus as his spoken word that changes reality. And in fact, to make everything through him. And in him was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. John says, if you're in a dark room with the door closed and you have a flashlight, who wins? If you're in a dark night and you've got a lantern, who wins? The darkness can be controlling, but the light always beats the darkness. It has no power against it. Also, the early Christian preacher who wrote the sermon we call Hebrews opened his message by talking about Jesus in a similar way. He said, in these last days, God has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, hear this, sustaining all things by his powerful word. The preacher says that if for a moment Jesus was to withdraw his breath of life-giving speech, everything would just not be. That Jesus actually didn't only create by a word, but continually keeps the universe running through a speech act. That's the way they think about our Lord Jesus, the word of God. So today we're going to pray and then we'll enter into the sermon in which we will look at the verbal utterances of Jesus, the word of God, in the Lazarus story. What does he say? And what emanates from his mouth? The first one isn't actually so much a word, it's a snort. It is, it's in the Greek. I thought maybe we ought to practice this together, but I'm gonna save it for after the prayer (laughs) to keep it dignified, but get ready. 
The second thing he does is offers a prayer. And the third thing is a pronouncement. The snort, the prayer, and the pronouncement. Let's pray. God of creation who made all things and is pleased to have life. Thank you for celebrating life. Thank you for sending Jesus into this world so that we could have and enjoy full and true life. Thank you for letting him speak to us so that we could hear what God thinks and wants to say. Thank you for letting him walk among us so that we can see how God carries himself in difficult situations. And we pray that as Jesus confronts the public enemy number one of death today in the reading, that you would show us how to carry ourselves and speak in the face of that same enemy and how to look with faith and belief on the Son of God. We pray that gift for all that are here that maybe already believe and all that don't yet believe and all that are watching from the future who are considering what to do with Jesus. Help us to see him clearly and make a wise decision about him. We pray that you would now powerfully work through the text and the sermon to give yourself glory and to help us to see Jesus more clearly. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. And together, all of us say, amen, amen. Okay, so let's start with the snort at the tomb. Are you ready to practice it? Give me your best snort right now. Go ahead, go. It's weak, 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 weak. Okay, like this. Go, go, snorts all around. Yes, snorts. Why is Jesus deeply moved, as the NIV says and the ESV says? Well, the NLT gets it a little bit more right this time when they translate this Greek very reliably to say that he was in fact angry and agitated, that Jesus is snorting with anger in this passage. He is so deeply moved that it's coming out as a kind of almost snarl or something. He's just deeply moved. And the three verses before this, we get this insight into the emotional world of Jesus. He has wept, he has cried tears, although not with wailing like many around him. There's a difference in the Greek words between the wailers and the weeper, and Jesus is is weeping in a different kind of way. So he's not angry, I believe, at their lack of faith. There's some reasons to think that. He's not angry at them for a lack of faith. One is because they've shown much faith already. In some of the words that Martha and Mary have spoken to him, they know that he's in control and that if he wanted to, he could save Lazarus. That's faith. Plus, he doesn't mention a lack of faith. And the third reason is many in the crowd have not yet had any reason to believe. They haven't had any reason to make their decision yet. And I also don't believe Jesus is angry because Lazarus is being whisked back down from heaven and forced back into the world of sorrow. And I don't know where that preaching idea came from, but I've heard it a number of times in my life, and I think it's nonsense, because God made the world and loves it. God so loved the world that he sent his son into it. Why wouldn't he send Lazarus back into it? He loves the world, he plans a new world someday. God is crazy about life, so no, I don't think Jesus is angry that Lazarus was doing so well and now has to come back down with the rest of us poor sods. I believe it is because he loves his friends and he's righteously angry at what death is doing to them. 
In this passage, Jesus faces public enemy of heaven, number one, head to head. So let's back off that for just a second and give ourselves some room to think about why it's this moment that Jesus gets that worked up about death. I told you the story has as many as 76 verses in it, and there's either five or seven vignettes, little stories that comprise the big one. I'm going to today go with seven. I think there's seven. The first one is with Jesus and his disciples. Okay, we didn't read it today. You'd have to back up to the beginning of 11 to read it. I encourage you to do so. Jesus gets word that Lazarus is sick and near death, and there's a lot of confusion in this vignette. He says he's asleep, and the disciples think, well, that's not so very bad. He's getting better. And Jesus says, no, I mean by sleep that he's dead. And they're like, why didn't you just say so? That's very bad. And they're confused about whether Jesus should go back and do something about it or not because the last time he was there, the Judeans tried to put him to death. There's a wonderful moment, though, with Thomas. It's like Thomas's shining moment outside of the big doubter story that he's known for in which, and we don't know whether this was resignation or great faithfulness, he says, let us also go with him that we might die with him. Wow. Might be some reason Jesus is getting emotional. The next vignette is Martha, one of his beloved friends and the sister of Lazarus, Mary, Martha, Lazarus, siblings. As he approaches then, two days later after waiting, and finds out that Lazarus is already dead, Martha comes out and says something very important to him. If you would have been here, he would not have died. What does she mean by that? Well, I think maybe she's still faithful and hopeful because of what she says after that. She says, but I know even now God will do for you whatever you ask. There is hope in Martha's statement. And in response to that hope, Jesus gives one of his most important sayings. I am the resurrection and the life. I wish I had time to preach that as a whole sermon today, but I don't, so we're going to keep on moving. Mary comes out next, the third vignette. Martha goes and tells her the Lord wants to see you, and she also comes out of the house and out to meet Jesus somewhere on the road, and she says the same thing as her sister. They must have been talking about it. If you would have been here, he wouldn't have died, but she doesn't say anything else, and Jesus doesn't ask her to. He sees her pain and her weeping, and he cries with her. That is his response. And then he says, where have they put the body? And they go together to go to the tomb. The next vignette, the fourth one, or the middle of the seven, is our preaching text. So I'll jump past that for a second to the last three and come back. The tomb, okay. The one after he raises Lazarus is the Judeans. They're making their decisions about what this means when he raises Lazarus. Some believe and some decide it's time to put this guy to death. They, they start thinking about what is expedient in their world. They start worrying about what will happen if he gains too much popularity and it looks like it's an uprising. Rome, they said, will come and take our place away and our nation. What is expedient is that one man would die for the sake of all the people. And so they make their decisions about him. And then we have Mary again in the sixth vignette. Now Jesus, after a delay and a departure for a while, comes back to Bethany to the house of the siblings. He has a meal with them. He eats across the table from Lazarus, who was once dead. And Mary comes with perfume and pours it on his feet and washes his feet with her hair and worships. 
It creates envy and anger within one of his disciples named Judas Iscariot. But finally, there is a royal entry, or what we often think of as Palm Sunday, when Jesus rides triumphant like a king into Jerusalem, and it's still part of the story of Lazarus because of what the people say. They remark on the fact that this is the man that raised Lazarus from the dead. So they're still working it out, and there would not be a Palm Sunday if it wasn't for the raising of Lazarus. So you've got all of these reasons that Jesus has to be emotionally engaged at the tomb. But there's another reason, more personal, that Jesus loves these three siblings and that that is never in doubt. They know it. When they, when they send for him, they say, the one you love is sick. He says in verse 5, Jesus loved them. And in verse 36, the Judeans even notice it when he weeps. They say, look how he loved him. And Jesus' love for people today is not in doubt either. It's a foundational belief in my life that Jesus loves every human in existence and that he is opposed to death and the tools of death in the world. You know, Jesus would be snorting, agitated, and mad over what death is doing in Ukraine today. And in fact, I believe him to be so right now. If you don't believe in a God who can be angry at death, you don't believe in a God who can bring justice. And if you believe that God must act now and wipe out all the unjust people, you might believe in a warlord more than the God revealed in Jesus. So this story gets deep into our personal business, doesn't it? Jesus also leaves us room to mourn. He leaves us room to mourn, but not as those who have no hope, but as those who have a great hope and yet are still sensitive to the ruin that death wreaks in our world and our lives. The fact that he can cry and not go into the despair of the whale teaches us, instructs us in mourning. This is what the snort means and maybe so much more. But Jesus isn't done, he prays. We want to look at the prayer at the tomb. To get to the prayer, he says something else. He commands them at the tomb, take away the stone. But Lord, Martha responded, by this time, he's going to stink. Martha's very in touch with reality, as they were in her day. She understands the way decay sets in, in a world before refrigeration, in a world without embalming techniques, at least in their place. She understands, as people in their day did, that to give someone a dignified burial, to make it meaningful, and to keep it somewhat clean and sanitary, it happened quick. If he died four days ago, he was buried four days ago. She understands what it means to be sealed in by the stone. It's kind of like a Tupperware effect on the body of Lazarus, and she is afraid to open it up. He's been there four days. What do we learn from this? Well, one thing is that Jesus' delay of two days did not matter regarding the prevention of Lazarus' death. No matter how you count it, if Jesus delayed two and he's been dead four, he wasn't going to be there in time. Now, we know that Jesus has the ability to transcend distance and could have healed him from a distance, but he chose not to. 
The two days matters greatly in making the raising of Lazarus a performance, in putting it on full display in light of all the people. More importantly, though, Lazarus right now in the tomb stinks. It's a visceral part of the story, and it's very, very real. And so I want to ask you, is there any place in your life where something has been dead for so long that you're resistant to God's power and new life when he wants to open it up and take a whiff? Is there anything in your life that you've let lay away and decay for so long that you don't want God to open that door? Does it stink too much to confront? And what does Jesus say to you? What does he want to do in you? So he says to Martha, did I not tell you that if you believe, you'll see the glory of God? Why don't we think about this for a moment? Is there anything in your life you've been avoiding letting God look at? What does it mean that if you believe, you'll see the glory of God? You know, this message, today's sermon, is the last of the seven signs, and with it, the end of our preaching series that we've been calling the Book of Signs. In John, there's just these seven miracles. Now we've come to the end. Next week, we'll begin a new series. We'll still be in the Gospel of John until Easter, but we're going to call the series Book of Glory because Jesus will start to talk about what it means to be glorified. The end of John where Jesus' glory is revealed is through his final days of ministry, his death, and his resurrection to incorruptible life. And although glory is mentioned a few times earlier in the book, it's really here at the end that he deals with it. For instance... In today's reading, in verse 4, he says, his sickness will not end in death. It's for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified through it. In verse 40, in our reading right here, he says, don't you know if you believe you'll see the glory of God? And in 1216, it says, Jesus' disciples did not understand these things. They didn't understand Lazarus. They didn't understand the triumphal entry, Palm Sunday. They didn't get it until after he was glorified, and then they were able to understand what he was all about. So these verses today that talk about glory are a sort of a hinge into what we're doing next. They'll lead us to the book of glory. And Jesus, in doing this, is saying something to you like he's saying to Martha. Obey me in this thing. Roll the stone back. Take the chance and face the rot. Look into the place of your great fear. You know, Jesus hangs his credibility, at least as far as this crowd is concerned, on what he's about to do. If you believe you will see the glory of God, which in John is life and light and love, so they took away the stone. They took a chance on Jesus. Now he prays towards heaven. We're finally to his prayer. And he says, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. Not please hear me, but I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here that they may believe that you sent me. One of the things we learn from that is that prayer is often a tool God uses to speak truth to the people in the crowd. It is not just about the prayer. It's often about the listener. 
But Lazarus's raising, according to Jesus' prayer, had been secured for some time now. It wasn't a thing he approached the tomb hoping would happen. It wasn't a wish. It was a promise of God for Jesus. They had already, Jesus and his father, agreed on this, and none of this theater was really necessary. From a distance he could have healed or raised him, no one beyond the immediate family would have been any the wiser. But all of this is so that people may believe that God is a sending God, that he sent Jesus into the world, that God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Doesn't that sound a little familiar? Football players all over the place wear John 3.16 on their eye black, in part because of Tim Tebow, mostly in part of Jesus. Because when it gets in you that God is ascending God, you just want to go with him in all the places that he's going. You want to get into the places that he's getting to. You lose your fear of the odor and the stink and the rot, and you want to go in and bring life and light and love. So do you believe that your raising is as secure as Lazarus's was, that God has agreed ahead of time with Jesus to give you your body and your life back somewhere in the distant future or maybe the near future, we don't really know. Do you have some confidence that it's not because of any good thing that you could do? And it's certainly not any good works you continue to do from here, but because God's glory is to delight in life, and giving life freely to all who believe in his son. Do you hear that? Jesus now thanks God for your raising already promised. If you believe that, and it is a big ask, but if you believe that, it does a couple of irrevocable things in you. The first one is this belief that your raising is secured gives you power to investigate those stinking places of your life. If your resurrection is secured, you can look with God at the very hardest of truths. You can look into the most painful situations in our world. This belief also gives you the security to love all, even in the face of death. If your future is secured, you can do what Jesus said to do. Love your enemies, pray for them, bless those who curse you. You know that today, this is what our Ukrainian brothers and sisters are being asked to do. And we are asked to do it with them. And this is one of the hardest things God could ask of his church, is to pray for those who persecute us and to bless those who curse us and not to give in to the easy tools of death. You know, right now, the people in Ukraine are some of the most Christian people in Eastern Europe. It's the nation in Eastern Europe with the highest percentage of Christians, with the highest number of Christian missionaries going out to the rest of Europe and the world from Eastern Europe. That place is more saturated with Jesus followers than any other spot in the map. And they're suffering. And like Jesus, we suffer and weep with them. 
And like Jesus, we learn that our future in him, if secure, gives us power to do the very hardest of things. Jesus isn't done yet. He has the pronouncement left to give. Lazarus, come out. Lazarus, come out. This isn't a magic trick of Jesus. I said earlier, it's not a wish, it's not a hope, it's secured. It has command to it, although interestingly, it isn't in the command tense. It's simply reality spoken. It is a performative utterance. And here, I thank my professor, Scott, who accidentally sent an email he intended for this week a week early last week. He meant to schedule it, he hit send, in which he talks about performative utterance, which is a kind of speech that even as it describes reality, creates it. It changes that reality. A few examples are like when two people are getting married and they say to each other, I do and I do too. A new thing is made in that moment. It's not just a statement, I do. It is I do, but it's also, and now it is. And I like to remind people when we talk about weddings not to minimize the importance of what the preacher gets to say, which is now by the power vested in me by the most high God in whatever state we happen to be in, I pronounce you man and wife. It's a very important part of the wedding and it makes the marriage happen somehow in the eyes of God to become one flesh. Also though, in a more easy, lighthearted example, before the umpire says, play ball, there is no baseball game. And after he says, play ball, there is baseball game. War can be declared, it changes reality. Someone says, I named this ship, whatever. It's a performative utterance. I bequeath my watch to whoever. It's a performative utterance. These are statements where volition, the will, and authority meet up to create a new reality. But someone has to have the authority to make it so. And the question here is whether Jesus has the authority. What happens normally when a person stands in front of a grave and says, come out? I mean, have you ever tried it? I'm not suggesting Covenant Church goes to all the local cemeteries today and shouts at headstones, but you don't probably expect much to happen. The performative utterance is Jesus' response. Think about what was said earlier in the Gospel of John. The same John, when he's reflecting on the healing of the man by the pool. He said that Jesus would do this. John 5, 25, 28, and 29. I, truly I tell you, a time is coming. And it's now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Do not be amazed at this. A time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done what is good will rise to live and those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. And Paul, writing to the Thessalonians and reflecting on this later in his ministry, said the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, I imagine, come out! And the voice of the archangel and the trumpet call of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. And some preachers have noted, thank goodness Jesus was specific when he said, Lazarus, come out, or all the dead would have shown up right there. 
This is a remarkable display of the ability of God to reach not just across time and space, but even dimensions and realities, to bring someone back from Sheol or death, to make them stand again, healed, not stinking, vibrant, alive. And what happens when Jesus, uniquely in history, stands in front of the tomb and shouts, Lazarus, come out, performative utterance? Well, Lazarus, his eyes open, Underneath what they call the burial clothes, the thing that's over his face and the bed sheet kind of thing he was wrapped in and the swaddling that was around his wrist to hold his arms down to his side and to hold his feet together, suddenly tips upward and begins to do the sack hop out of the grave. This is where Christians got the game. He begins... You know, he can't really see much. They've got a cloth in front of his face. But, but he sees over here light and over all around here dark. And through that loosely knitted ancient Near Eastern fabric over his face, he starts sack hopping towards the light. He comes out of the tomb on the hop. Can you imagine the faces of the onlookers as they see him bound from the tomb? still bound in his grave clothes. Can you imagine the, the shock on some faces, the jaws dropping, the, the praise, the worship? Can you imagine the people beginning to clap and say, wow, we've never seen anything like it? And there's Lazarus. I mean, what comes next? Jesus says, Take off the grave clothes and let him go. That's it. And they begin to unwind him and unroll all this fabric. You know, there's some parallels here to Jesus' own resurrection. There's some really obvious ones, but the story is building towards a point. It's building towards what happens with him. You've got the grave and the stone rolled in front of it. Doesn't that sound kind of familiar? You've got the amount of time that they're both in the grave. Four days for Lazarus, three for Jesus. The point in both cases being that that in Jewish imagination is enough time for the spirit to have moved well away from the body, that there's no resuscitation possible. This really can't happen. But the grave clothes are what catch my attention. It's the grave clothes that speak to me about this word that Jesus gives because when Lazarus comes jumping out of that tomb still wrapped up, he's got to have some other people unwrap him. Jesus is like, come out and you guys help him get acclimated to life again. And when we encounter Jesus on the day of his resurrection, the grave clothes are folded and neatly put in place because he's not going to need them again. And nobody had to help him out. Jesus is the one that God says has life in himself, the power to lay his life down and to take it back up again. And he does so just fine, thank you, walks out, unfolds his clothes, and leaves the tomb all by himself. After people hear about that, this becomes an even more persuasive miracle. It's an extremely persuasive miracle. We know that because the people say it in 11.45 and 12.9-11 and 12.17-19. and 19. They keep saying, what a thing this is. And they make their decisions about Jesus. But my favorite is 12, 17 to 19 at Palm Sunday. When they remember not just that Lazarus was raised from the dead, 
but the performative utterance of Jesus, the word of God. They say, do you remember when he called Lazarus from the tomb? That was a sign to them. And so I ask you today, what are you going to do with this Jesus? What do you do with him? He's given you now seven signs worth of reasons to think about him seriously, to make a decision. If you've been here for the whole sermon series, then then you know them all. If not, guess what? You go back and you watch them online and you're part of the church of the future for those services where God works mysteriously through time and space to touch your heart. But they're there for you. They're in the gospel for you. You read the signs, you see the seven signs, and you know a decision must be made. What will you do with Jesus? You can't go on forever putting that off. Don't keep living your life in the expedient moment, just getting by, making decisions that just kind of forward your life one day at a time. Don't give in to the tools of death that tell you it's just okay to be full of hatred. It's okay to be full of bitterness. What will you do with Jesus? Do you want to be transformed or not? What will you do with him? Would you pray with me today? Dear sending God, who so loved your world and creation that you entered into it through the one we call the Son of God, thank you for coming to us. Thank you for coming to us in this world where we see so much death and where we have so much rot. Thank you for coming us today through the scripture again when we have so much to be worried about in our world and there's so much unjust suffering. Thank you for joining us here and reminding us that you've had our futures secured and planned for a long, long time and they're not going to change because some warlords do this and that. But we still weep and we ask you to do more. Save us. Save our world. Help us to believe when we feel like we can't believe in Jesus. Give us some faith in him that even if we don't know that this is all true, we would say from our heart, but I want it to be so. Teach us to pray. Teach us to bless. Give us a little bit of the resurrection that's to come now. We ask you all this in the only one who is ever able and ever will be, in Jesus, your son. We ask you with whatever faith we have to give, all of it, laid in worship before you for his sake. And we give you glory. In the name of Jesus, we pray. And together, all of us say. ways to connect, visit our website at covenantdoylestown.org or follow us on Facebook or Instagram.